Good morning. Good morning. Morning. <laughs> uh, hey, what a lovely morning. Nice to have some sunshine. Nice to have a nice frost this morning, wasn't it? And uh, just remind you that we're much further into the year than what we thought we were, perhaps. And uh, anyway, Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. It will come up on your screen if you don't have a Bible with you. We are continuing our, our series. And uh, this morning we're looking at the obedient king, or what we might subtitle the saving, saving life of the king. So Isaiah 50 verses uh, 4 to 9. And we read these words. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are instructed to know how to sustain the weary with a word. He awakens me each morning. He awakens my ear to listen like those being instructed. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn back. I gave my back to those who beat me, and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. The Lord God will help me, therefore I have not been humiliated. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. The one who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us confront each other. Who has a case against me? Let him come near me. In truth, the Lord God will help me. Who will condemn me? Indeed, all of them will wear out like a garment, a moth will devour them. So this is the third in our messianic passages, and it's speaking of the coming of Jesus. And probably even as I've read that, you have uh, already connected some of the dots, as it were, and realized that some of those phrases that are picked up in the New Testament. But as we get into this, it's good to just look at some background. And I don't know about you, but one of the first words a child ever says is no. Yeah? You know, if it's not daddy or mummy, it's no. And have you ever noticed that you never have to instruct them to say that? Somehow it's wired into their system to say no and to say it with absolute defiance. There's something that just seems totally natural to them to do that. And so we enter on a, a process of instruction, of teaching right from wrong, exercising the necessary discipline. Obedience, we discover, is something that must be learnt. It just doesn't come naturally. Anybody identify with that? You know, you were a child once. If, you, if you're not a parent, you were a child at one time. You know those things. And uh, somehow it's easier to do wrong than right. And even when we are adults, somehow there's that thing in us that wants us to, to, to just go against the rules, isn't it? I mean, we see something that says don't walk on the grass. And something in us wants to walk on the grass. And the fact is that we never really grow out of it. And so Paul says in Romans, the good that I want to do, I don't. And the bad I don't want to do, I do. And frequently, though, then as we get older, it just becomes a little more nuanced. And it's a reminder that there's something fundamentally wrong with humanity. The Bible has a word for it. It calls it sin. It separates us from God and from one another. It messes us up personally, and it robs us of eternal life. 
And the Bible goes to, so far as to say that we are enslaved by it, that it's actually in our nature. Which leads us to this, this reading and the context of the reading. You see, this was Israel's experience. They were a sinful people. You can read in, in the first, uh, first verse that kind of connection. They had been sent away uh, into captivity for that very reason. Uh, and because they were a rebellious people, a disobedient people. They, and, and even now, there's that sense in which they're continuing in the adulterous and idolatrous, idolatrous ways of that previous generations. And in the New Testament, Romans reminds us that it's both a, a Jewish and a Gentile problem. At the heart of all that we see that is wrong with our world is this sinful disposition, this rebellion, this uh, uh, adulterous and idolatrousness that exists within the human heart. And it begs a question here as we jump into this particular chapter that can God save? Does it mean God cannot save? And the inference is no. Is my arm too weak to redeem? Do I have no power to rescue? And so we've had generations of adulterous and idolatrous people, people who have sinned and rebelled against God. They've gone into captivity and they are still no different. And so it begs the question, is my arm too weak to redeem or do I have no power to rescue? And it's in many ways a rhetorical question because the answer is a definite no. God is still able to save. Praise God. And, and uh, that's the wonderful thing that we need to hear as we dig into this passage about the obedient servant. It goes on to speak of the deliverance that will come through his obedient servant, the Messiah King. He spoke as one who was instructed, someone who was a disciple, in verse 4 there. That, that he knew how to sustain the weary, again in verse 4. That he was awakened by the Lord and listened to his voice, and that he was obedient to it, in verses 4 and 5. And how he gave his back to those who beat him, and he set his face as a flint, knowing that God was his helper and vindicator. So there's an awful lot packed into this passage, and it reminds us of the words, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. And the son can only do what he sees the father doing, John 5, 19. And again, I do not speak on my own, but what the father has commanded me and how to say it, John 12, 49. And we know how he would get up and he would go away and uh, be with the father and he would be in, in fellowship with him, he would be in communion communication with him he would be in prayer he would be listening to the father's voice and he would come away from the father's presence to do the father's will and so he ministered to the weary and the broken and so on and how he set his face on going to the cross and God would vindicate him. So we, there's an awful lot that is going on here. And it speaks of what's referred to as both his, his passive and his active obedience. Some uh, people teach that uh, his active obedience was through his life and his passive obedience was solely in his sufferings and death. But actually, they're both intricately tied together. 
So it speaks of his passive and active obedience. And it refers to his whole life. It refers to what we might call the vicarious humanity of Jesus, where he comes and he takes on our flesh and he stands in our place and he represents us. He is therefore then in the context of these verses and in the context of the whole gospel, he is both the true Israelite and the second and the last Adam. And the life and obedience of Jesus is something that we perhaps frequently overlook when we think of the Gospels. And it's also good to remember that when they preached the Gospel in the days of the early church, they preached it off the Old Testament, whereas we tend to preach from the New Testament. Nothing particularly wrong with that, but it's just good to observe that, that when they preached the Gospel, they preached out of the Old Testament the good news of Jesus Christ. We very often then uh, jump to the cross. And, but if the cross is all that we preach, we're only actually preaching half of the gospel. Salvation, in other words, from the penalty of sin, but not the demands of the law. And everything then depends on who he was, how he lived, and the incarnation and life of Jesus is there vitally important, is therefore vitally important. It's good to be aware of that as we run up into Christmas. You know, we, 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 we make a lot of his birth, the fact that he comes and takes on real flesh like ours. But then very often we jump to the next, for us the next part of the story is we get to Easter and, and we, we, we think of his death and his resurrection. But there were many years in between his incarnation and his death and his resurrection. And I want you to understand this morning that those years were vitally important to our salvation were just as important as his death on the cross. And as the early church father Gregory put it, he said, the unassumed is the unredeemed or the unhealed. Anything less than that and we have no saviour. And so John writes in, in, in his gospel words that we're familiar with, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In order to bring about our salvation, then it was necessary for Jesus to enter our fractured, weak, broken humanity in order to redeem every part of it. Not simply to save us and get us to heaven, but to redeem every part of it. Not just our separation and alienation from God, but what it had done to us, spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, relationally. That he be born under the law, that we might be redeemed and be adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. Hallelujah. What a gospel. What a gospel. And there's a song that we sing, isn't it, that says, How great the chasm that lay between us, how high the mountain I could not climb. And it's good for us to pause and think about that chasm. It's good for us to pause and think in the poetic words of the song, How high the mountain I could not climb. 
it was beyond us in every way. There was no way we could, we could get ourselves to heaven, get ourselves into a right relationship with God by pulling our socks up and trying harder. We, need, we needed God to come in Jesus, to be born in flesh like ours, to live and die for us. And so Paul says that Jesus emptied himself, taking on the full likeness of our humanity, even the likeness of sinful flesh. We read that in Philippians 2, 7 and Romans 8, 3. Not just that it looked like it, but like it in the sense that he bore the same flesh that we do and knew what it was to be tempted in all points as we are. I think it's good for us to stop and remember as we approach Christmas that Jesus took on real flesh. Didn't look, it wasn't something that just looked like it. He took on the likeness of sinful flesh. It was the reality of it. He knew what it would be like to live in an earthly body that is subject to the things that our earthly bodies are subject to. He would be tempted in all points as we are. And so that song goes on to say, The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. And we very often think of that perhaps in the terms of when he went to the cross, that that is where he wore our sin and bore our shame. No, right from his very birth, right from the very beginning, he took it on in order to bring us salvation. And so it says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knew what it was to enter into our estate. And so Hebrews tells us that since we are flesh and blood, he took the same, Hebrews 2 verse 14. And in 2 verse 17, that it was necessary that he was made like us in every way. And then in Hebrews 2.10, that he was perfected through suffering and that he was tempted and that he should learn obedience by the things that he suffered. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 3, verse, 6, verse 15, he said that he came to fulfill all righteousness. It was necessary that he fulfill all righteousness. And that's why we're thinking of him as the obedient king, the obedient servant. Because we had not fulfilled all righteousness. Scripture tells us that we had fallen short by a long way. That, he, that our righteousness is as filthy rags in God's sight. But Jesus comes to fulfill all righteousness and, and that's what he said when he went to be baptized and, and John was perplexed. He knew who this man was standing in front of him, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And, 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 and his question was, why, why do you need to be baptized? You're not part and parcel of this. And Jesus says, it must be so in order to fulfill all righteousness. And so he identifies himself with us. He came to fulfill all righteousness, to live a life of faith and perfect obedience to the Father. And so when we think of the life of Jesus, and I, I, I've compacted an awful lot in a small space here in order to try and get this big picture of it in the context of Isaiah. Day by day, Jesus said no to Satan and sin, and he said yes to the Father and righteousness. 
Day by day, he resisted all that was against God and humanity and so defeated Satan and sin at every turn in his life, tearing away all that alienated us from God, and so he bound the strong man so that, the, so that come the cross, he could say the enemy had no claim on him. Hallelujah. Day by day, he listened to the Father. He said yes to the Father, and he said no to Satan and sin. By the time he gets to that hour of decision, he knows that Satan has no claim on him. Hallelujah. And he knew that God would vindicate him in the words of Isaiah there. In doing so, Jesus undid what the fall had done and offered it back to God as the life that we should have lived but couldn't. And so he was able to offer himself ultimately as that atoning sacrifice for all our sins. He took our sin, he took our guilt, he took our shame. He died the just for the unjust that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that staggering? What, what a, an exchange. I tell you what, you won't get a deal like this out there in the world. You know, you see all the offers, you see them on the TV, you see them in the shops. And so on. There's nothing that compares to this. This is a, a staggering deal. He lived the life that we should have lived, and then he died the death that we should have died. John Owen puts it in this way, the death of death in the death of Christ, as he dies for all humanity, as he bears the sins of our, our, our broken humanity. He bears the, the justice of God on it. He fulfilled the law in life and he bore its judgment in death. What a savior. What a savior. And so we read in Romans, we read these words that therefore, as one trespass or the trespass of one man led to condemnation for everyone, so one act of righteousness or the righteousness of one man leads to justification and life for all. <laughs> justification. That is to be put into the position as if you had never, ever, ever, ever sinned. Isn't that staggering? And life, life for all. For as by the one man's obedience, many were constituted sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be constituted righteous. Isn't that staggering? Isn't that so staggering? Not only are we justified in Christ, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? What an exchange. So he lived day by day the life that Israel should have lived. He lived day by day the life that we should have lived. He lived out a life of obedient faith before his heavenly father 
and before a watching world. So at the end of his life, as he approaches the end, Pilate could say, I find no fault in him. No fault. That's staggering, isn't it? You can sit with me for a short while and you soon find a fault. And I dare say I could with you as well. But Pilate could say, I find no fault in him. That's a staggering statement. And so he went to the cross as the obedient servant, bearing our sin, bearing our shame. And he pays the price for our sin. And his righteousness is charged to our account. Wonderful to do be justified, isn't it? Even better to know that we're the righteousness of God in Christ. And that's why we need the life of Christ. That's why we need the obedient life of Christ. That's why we need the whole gospel concerning his life, his death, and his resurrection. There's a theologian I particularly love. His name is Thomas Torrance. And this is what he said. It'll come up on the screen. I'm going to read it slowly because this is packed. In Jesus Christ, the word of God has become man, has assumed a human form in order as such to be God's language to man. And that in Jesus Christ, there is gathered up and embodied in obedient response to God, man's true word to God and his true speech about God. You might want to take that one away and go home and think about it because it's a loaded statement. I read it again. In Jesus Christ, the word of God has become man, has assumed a human form in order as such to be God's language to man. Think of that as we approach Christmas, of the word becoming flesh, that this is God speaking to us. This is God revealing his heart of love to us. This is God revealing his mercy and grace to us. God's language to man. And that in Jesus Christ there is gathered up, as he lives out this obedient life, there is gathered up and embodied in an obedient response to God, man's true word to God and his true speech about God. All that should be the case if we were to be living rightly with God. It's now been gathered up in him. And now in Christ, we find ourselves in him offering that right speech to God. Isn't that staggering? Absolutely staggering. So when we think of this subject here, we, we think of the obedient servant. We think of his whole life and his subsequent death on the cross, which we'll be hearing about next week. Christ then is the, the focal point of our response to God. Our response to God is made within Christ's response, his full and complete and obedient response, an echo of his yes to the Father. I find great encouragement there, because I know that I'm not perfect. I know that as much as I am being transformed, I'm not there yet. But I know that 
there is a response in Christ of yes to the Father. And so when you think of that phrase that we've mentioned at times, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's so true. So true. Because Jesus came and he lived out the life we should have lived as the obedient servant. And then he took our sin to himself and he was made sin for us and he, he paid the price for it on the cross. And he went down into death and rose again. And he lives today. Hallelujah. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? So let's just stand, shall we, as we just draw this to a close. I wonder where your focal point is this morning. Because one of my observations is about myself and is about, is about us as Christians at times. Our focal point is ourselves. And if our focal point should be Jesus. Everything should constantly be driving us back to Jesus who is our everything and our all. It may be that you've lost sight of Jesus in this last week. It may be that the enemy's got the, the, enemy's got the better of you in some way and he's defeated you. And these verses in, in uh, Isaiah 50 remind me of the end of Romans where it says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's Christ who justifies so as we're in the presence of God, just turn your eyes upon Jesus. Just take a good look at him and see who he is and how he lived, how he was the obedient servant on your behalf, the obedient king, how he lived out a perfect life of faith and obedience for you. And that he is our response to God. And the weakness that we see in our own faith and in our own obedience, we can look away from and look to him and his complete faith and full obedience. Knowing that he has defeated Satan, sin, death and hell. That he died the just for the unjust that we might be reconciled to God God your gospel is so amazing it staggers us every time we think about it and just now in these moments I pray that we might all become more aware Lord Jesus of who you are and what you've done for us Forgive us that we so often look in on our own selves and look at the performance of our own faith and, and uh, obedience. And Lord, we fall short in so many ways, but you're transforming us. But Jesus, you are everything and we are the righteousness of God in you. Help us to go out of here this morning then with our heads lifted high because of who you are, what you've done. Thank you, 